Our gracious Father, we're so grateful for the mercy that you've had on us, that you call us your people, that you draw us to yourself, and that you lead us. And so, Lord, lead us now as we study your word. Help us to see and understand what it is that you want us to know. And Father, this morning I want to lift up our sister Trina Jones as she's in the hospital uh, with uh, potential kidney stones. Lord, thank you that the tests have been taken. We look forward to the results. And I pray for healing for her this morning. Lord, would you give her uh, the, the healing that she needs? And in the midst of her pain, in the midst of her difficulty, Lord, I pray that you would remind her of your love for her, your commitment to her, and your walking with her. And the same for Steve, Lord. Would you be with Steve as he watches his wife suffer? Um, I pray that the suffering would end soon and that uh, they would be delivered. So have, have mercy on them both. Um, lead them, I pray. And uh, Father, I pray now that, that you'd be with us in the study of the word. Help us to see and understand. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So um, last week's sermon was a bit of a word shower. <laughs> there was a lot of text there. There was two and a half chapters. So did you notice how short this was? <laughs> That's a mercy, isn't it? <laughs> I'm, what I'm doing, I'm just following what Moses has written. I'm not trying to make this up. Um, I understand. I went out to lunch last week, and I was corrected. I made a big mistake. I kept saying the wrong thing, and so I need to correct it. Right at the beginning of last week, 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, and I said that in the ESV, it said the Lord had said. It was the NIV that said the Lord had said. So um, your, your pastor is fallible. <laughs> Um, demonstrated on a daily, moment-by-moment -moment basis, and so uh, just want to own up to that. One last little introduction. Um, we have been delivered from Egypt, right? We, you heard at the beginning, when Pharaoh let the people go, we have left Egypt. We don't have a map. I don't have a map that I'm going to put up, and the reason is because we don't know where they are. We don't know where they, what route they took. We don't have a clue, and you know what? It doesn't matter. It's okay. It doesn't matter if we don't know the exact locations. The truth remains the same. So um, no map to guide us on where they went. Uh, I was looking for one. There's actually three potential routes out of Egypt. And I was looking for one that mapped all three. And when I found them, they were just a jumbled mess of lines. I went, you know, we'll just pass. You know, it'll be OK. So let's go ahead and look at this. This section feels like a transition again, doesn't it? We just had the monumental, that colossal event of the deliverance from Egypt, which was the Passover. And, and that was the end of that. And what comes next is the wandering in the wilderness. And so this little section that we read this morning feels like one of those transitional pieces, just kind of moving between, all right, so here's where we were, here's where we're going. Let me sum this up and press on. But there's actually, as typical, a lot of theology, a lot of really important things that we learn in this. So what we're going to see in this little section is that by faith and by promise, God leads his people. So it's by faith and by promise that God is going to lead us here. So the first portion is uh, the first two verses, uh, 17 and 18. When Pharaoh let the people go, boy, doesn't that, does that ring in your ears the way it does in my ears? What did Moses constantly say nine, ten times in a row? The Lord says, let my people go. And Pharaoh went, no. And now it's summed up as this. When Pharaoh let the people go, God won. God beat them. So when, God, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, though that was near. So that kind of begs the question, where are we leading to out of Egypt? Where are we going from Egypt? Well, don't forget, this is in the context of God's covenant promise to Abraham. And God had told Abraham that your descendants would inherit this land that you're wandering on. So they're supposed to be heading back to Canaan. 
So when it talks about the way of the Philistines, that was a northern route along the, um, along the Mediterranean Sea that would go right up into Canaan. That would, have been the, that would be the freeway. So instead of taking San Francisco Guido Canyon Road to uh, Santa Clarita, it would be taking the 14. But God didn't take them on the 14. He took them the back route. Uh, there's one phrase in there that's a little bit of a trouble for us, and that's the land of the Philistines. Now, you remember my timeline for the Exodus was about the 14th century BC. Um, the Philistines didn't show up, and it was Egypt who brought them in in the 12th century. So it's a little bit of a challenge for the timeline, but I'm sticking by my guns. I'm, I'm going to double down on this. I still think it was around the 14th century BC. Um, it may be that the Philistines were there in a way we didn't understand. Or maybe they got their name because this was the road there. I don't know, but um, I just want to be clear on that. The, the Philistines is kind of a problem word for my timeline. Um, but I'll own that. I'll take that. So he leads them. Um, by the way, the Philistines, uh, the land of the Philistines, though that was near, he didn't go that way. Instead, God says, lest the people change their minds when they see, and, uh, see war and return to Egypt. So there's the danger. God is, is leading his people. And he says, you know what? They're not ready. They're just not ready. Um, if they see war, they may turn and flee. Um, what's going on there? Um, let me come back to that at the end, okay? Is that all right if I come back to that? Uh, because I think that's really the important part of this. But instead, it said that he led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. Um, we don't know where the Red Sea was. Uh, you, you'll see pictures of it, you'll see maps, and everybody pins it down. And, and as you do more research, there's a bunch of different locations for the Red Sea. Don't absolutely know where it is. Um, it was called the Reed Sea is probably more a better translation. So they're thinking it was a marshy land with a lot of reeds and that kind of stuff. But whatever it was, what we'll find out is it had to be deep enough to kill an entire army. So it's not just a puddle they went through. Um, we'll get there. We'll, we'll, we'll wind up there. Um, and it says that, and the people went out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Does that sound like what happened in the last chapter? It sounds like people were throwing stuff at him and saying, get out. So what does it mean that they were equipped for battle? Well, the New American Standard Bible says in martial array, in martial array. And the Christian Standard Bible says in battle formation. And the word equipped is actually not in the Hebrew. Um, but the word that is used there, uh, shamash, is often used for organized for war. That's, that's the most common use of the word. So perhaps a better way to translate this would to say they marched out in an organized fashion. That's what it, it's getting at. So it's not like they went marching out with their you know, shields and swords ready to take somebody on. That's not the picture we get of Israel at this point. Um, they march out because God told them to. And also, didn't God just say, you know what, if they wind up encountering war, they may change their mind. They may go back. So it doesn't really fit too well. But if it's, they just went out in an organized fashion, I think that's a little bit better. So um, that's what I'm going to go with, is, is they didn't go out in, in military array, but they just went out. So who went out? This is something I kind of glazed over last week um, because we had just too much to cover. Uh, Exodus 12, 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So who left Egypt? 
600,000 men besides women and children. So if the numbers are correct, that would be about 2 million people got up and walked out of Egypt. That, just for, for reference, the size of, of Lancaster is about 156,000. So it's more than the city of Lancaster getting up and walking to, let's say, Edwards Air Force Base. That's a large amount of people. That's huge. So for a little perspective, around the same time as the Exodus, um, Ramses II, who may or may not be the pharaoh we've been dealing with, Ramses II fought a battle at Kadesh in Syria. And each side fielded an army of about 20,000 troops. And these were the powerhouses of the day. So when this says Israel has 600,000 men walk out, that's a considerable army. I mean, it, it's, it's enough to really beat anybody at that point. So some people think maybe it wasn't 600,000 people. Maybe it wasn't 600,000 men. And the way they get there is they say, well, the word for 1,000 here, elep, can also mean clan. So 600 clans is another way to translate it. Um, and they get that from places like Judges 6.15, when Gideon complains that his clan is the smallest in Manasseh. It's that same word. So 1,000 could be a, another way of saying clan. And that, that was the thought. Um, and if that's true, then we're talking about 5,500 people or so. <laughs> Don't you love these disparities, these, these huge gap? So either 600,000 or either 2 million or 5,000, somewhere in between there, right? That's what it could be. Um, don't forget, though, the whole thing started. Remember how Exodus started in chapter 1, verse 9? Pharaoh was terrified because Israel was getting too big. There are too many of them. They're going to take over. And so the idea that they might increase only to 5,500 5, in 80 years doesn't sound terribly threatening. Um, but getting to 600,000 men, which means 2 million people, that would be much more intimidating. Uh, so that's one thing to consider. Also, when they get to the point where they're going to build the tabernacle, um, can't wait till we get there. A little spoiler alert. What is donated is six and a half tons of material of gold and silver and all the precious things, about six and a half tons worth of stuff. Could 5,550 people carry six and a half tons? That would be a huge donation on the part of a small group, a group even if they grew by that time to, say, 10,000 or 15,000. That would be a big donation for a small group that size. Let alone, how are they going to carry all this stuff? I mean, they've got to have some way to transport it. So the bigger number is sounding better now. Um, and then finally, when we get to chapter 17, Israel is going to fight and defeat the Amalekites. Um, 5,500 people, if we go with 600 clans instead of 600,000 uh, men, um, maybe the bigger number makes sense there because they wipe them out. And what we'll see in the, in the journeys is the bigger number is, is terrifying to other people too. So... Um, you can go with a number somewhere between uh, 5,000 and 2 million, whatever works for you. Uh, whatever it is, whatever is happening there, remember that God does not require a large army to de deliver his people. Um, he could have done it with 5,000 people, 5,000 people, I mean, however many fighting men that might be. Go back to Gideon. Remember, Gideon was complaining about his tribe was the least in, in his clan 
or his clan was the least in the tribe of Manasseh. This is something else that God says in uh, Judges 7.2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, by my own hand, he, by my own hand, uh, my own hand has saved me. So right there, God looked at Gideon and he said, I want you to go and attack the Midianites. And by the way, you have too many people. Do you, do you recall what we got down to before, by the time they went to fight? 300 men. So he started with somewhere in the neighborhood, if I remember correctly, 10,000. No, that's too many. And he whittles them down to 300. He goes, okay, there we go. We can do it. God can deliver with a number large or small. So I, I don't think it's terribly important. There's another one, too. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 6. The army of Syria surrounds the city that Elisha was in. And so um, what God did is, is uh, Elisha goes out and he looks and he says, hey, we're surrounded, and his, his servant is all nervous. And so Elisha says um, to his servant, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So the Syrian army has surrounded the city, and his response is, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened his, the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So God could deliver this city. What God eventually did was he blinded that army that came to the city. Elisha said, oh, you got the wrong place. Follow me, and leads them straight into the middle of Israel. And then he prays, God, open their eyes. And their eyes are opened, and they're terrified because they're right in the middle of their enemies, surrounded. And Elisha's command was, let these people go. Feed them, clothe them, and then send them back. And so what was the king of Syria's response? He heard a hallelujah in the midst of his enemies, and his response was to worship God. Nope. Chapter 7, when Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, besieged Samaria, four lepers went out from the city. They were outside the city, and their reasoning was, if we stay in the city, the famine is so bad, we're going to die. If we go to the camp of the Syrians, they may kill us and we're going to die. We're going to die. <laughs> Let's at least give it a shot. So they walk into the camp of the Syrians and this is what they found. The Lord, this is from um, chapter 7 starting in verse 6. The Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And so who delivered Samaria? God did, and four lepers found it. So does God need a gigantic army of human beings to go fight his battles? So does it really matter if the number is 600,000 or 2 million people or 5,000? God is able to deliver. God is the one who will deliver. God is the one who will do this. And so that's why it's important to remember this. And it's God alone who will, who will deliver his people. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we will rise and stand. So wh whatever... Whatever the problem was, God is able to deliver whatever it was. But don't forget this. God had also made a promise to Abraham. And we've heard it a couple of times. Who's going to go and inherit the land that Abraham was wandering in? A tribe of 70? No, I'm going to make your offspring as numerous as the stars. 
as numerous as the sands on the sea. So I'm leaning towards two million people walking out of Egypt, and many more than that getting to the promised land. I, I think that's probably what God was up to. So here's the important part. In all of that, in all of those things, what is the one thing that keeps coming back and again and again and again? Is that your numbers count. Big churches matter. The theme is, it's God who delivers. It's God who multiplies. It's God who is in charge. That's the theme there. So that's the picture that you get. Now let's go back to that one phrase that I kind of skipped. I said I'll come back to it. God said, I'm not going to take them the most direct route because if they run into war, they may change their mind. So preface, this is not a health, wealth, and prosperity message. This is not if you believe it, you will achieve it. Okay? The, the theme here is who God is and what God has done. But what you believe matters. Your mind is important to God, too. What you think and what you believe is, is part of it. See, God is sovereign, and he could have surrounded Egypt with angels and wiped out the host and had those people walk right out. He could have surrounded Israel with angels and marched them straight into the promised land and settled it at that moment. God is that sovereign. He is that powerful. He could have done any number of things, but God is also a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The shepherd pays attention to the sheep. The shepherd doesn't ignore the sheep and go, we're going to do it my way. The, the, the shepherd is engaged with his sheep. And so what we get here is a picture of this beautiful, sovereign God caring for his people. What they thought mattered. So during the first nine, the first nine plagues, what did they do? What did Israel do? Do you remember that? Zero. All they did was sit. They didn't even get told to prepare or nothing. They just were there. During the 10th plague, what did they do? What miraculous, wonderful thing did they have to do to deliver themselves from Egypt? Splatter some blood on a door and eat dinner. That was their deliverance. That's the picture that they have. But now as they come out, as they leave the land, if they run into war, God is worried that they will change their minds. What's happened to these people? They have been in Egypt for as long as they can possibly remember, generations upon generations. They have been enslaved for at least 80 years, right? Maybe more, because we don't know how long it was between um, chapter 1 and chapter 3 when Moses is born. It might have been much longer. They have been enslaved for a long time. What do they believe they are? They believe they are slaves. So if they go out and they face war, they have never had power. They have never had authority. They have never gone out and fought a battle like this. They need to get Egypt out of their heads. And so God is being careful and he's saying, if we go and they run into war, they might chicken out. And I don't want them to chicken out. So what is he going to do between chapter 13 and chapter 17? He's going to be with his people and encourage them and inform them, you are not slaves, you are my people. So then when they run into the army of the Amalekites, they can actually fight and win. They will deliver them. But even there, it'll be miraculous, and we'll see that. It'll be about God. So one of the things C.S. Lewis has said about humility, I think, is spot on. C.S. Lewis said, what humility is, is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I think there's great wisdom in it. It's not thinking, oh, what a loser and horrible person I am. It's just not thinking. I just don't consider myself in this equation. 
I consider God first. I think of myself less often. So that's what Israel has got to learn at this point. They may run into warfare and still be relying on their own strength, their own power to deliver. And God says, no, you can't do that. We're not ready for that yet. So let's take a walk in the wilderness for a little bit until we get you ready to go. Isn't that beautiful? God, is he pays attention to his people, and he says, I'm going to prepare you. I'm going to walk with you. We're going to go together, and then I'll get you ready for this. I'll, I'll get you ready for this, this tremendous promise that you'll inherit. So one of the, thing, the most important lessons there, I think, is don't trust yourself. Don't look to yourself and say, I got this. You may not. You may underestimate what you got. Because what you've got is God on your side. He's working with you. He's working in you. He's working through you. So like I said, this isn't health, wealth, and prosperity. Where did Israel wind up? Not in the promised land. They wound up in the desert for a long time. So that may be what God knows is best for you, to develop you, to build you. But your mind matters. What you think, what you believe is actually important to God. He cares, and he'll pay attention to that. So watch for that. So it, it's their faith in God that has to be strengthened. It's their faith in God, their trust of him that has to be built up. And that's why I think Moses brings up the very next thing. It seems like it's almost dropped in out of the blue. Listen to what he says next. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you will carry my bones up with you from here. There it is. Okay, next point. Let me unpack that a little bit. What's going on with the bones of Joseph? Well, the bones of Joseph are not a box with a bunch of bones rattling around in it. Because back in Genesis chapter 50, it says that Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him and put him in a coffin in Egypt. So it's not a box of bones they're rattling around. They're carrying a mummy. It's almost Halloween. You can picture a mummy. So they're, they're carrying uh, Joseph in his box with them out of Egypt. How they got that, I haven't a clue. Where they kept it, I don't know. Why does Moses mention it? For a very specific reason. Joseph believed a promise. Joseph was trusting in a promise of God. When he brought his family into Egypt, he delivered them from the famine. He protected them from the famine. They came in and he said, now when you leave, when you leave, because you're going to leave, and when you go, I want you to take my bones with me because you're going to a location. You're going to a place. And when you go to that place, I want to go with you. I want my desiccated, mummified body to travel with you to that place. What was Joseph thinking? Well, he was trusting in the promise that God had made to Abraham. Your family will return to this land. They will be in slavery. They will be in a country not their own for 400 years and then they will return. And so Joseph, the most, second most powerful man in the world at that time is going, I want in on that. I want to participate with that. So when you leave in 400 years, you take me with you. Don't leave me here. And that's exactly what happens. And we hear about the fulfillment of this in, jo in uh, the book of Joshua. Joshua 24, 32. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, in the piece of land that Jacob bought for the son, from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money, it became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. 
they fulfilled their promise. God fulfilled his promise because he was able to be buried at Shechem because now that's part of Israel. And, and again, the, the question here is, do you trust God? Are you putting your hope in God? Are you putting your faith in God? Hebrews 11.22, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith. Did he have any reason, go back 400 years, how many people came into Egypt? 70. That was the entire tribe of Israel. That was the entire clan of Israel, 70 people. And the second most powerful man in the world looks and says, when you leave, take me with you. Knowing it would be 400 years. How do you explain something like that? By faith, Joseph at the end of his life. That's what he was counting on. He was looking forward to his covenant promise. And so what did he have faith in? The covenant promise. Um, chapter 50, verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, God will surely visit you and you will carry my bones up from here. Do you hear what he mentioned? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the covenant. The God of the covenant of our people. The God who made a promise to our, our grandfather Abraham. That God. That's the promise. So what are the people of Israel, as they're departing from Egypt, what are they supposed to be counting on? What are they supposed to be looking forward to? What are they supposed to pin their hopes on? Their military might that they can go in and, and kick the Canaanites out of the land? They are heading out. They're supposed to be heading out with full faith in the promise that God has made to their father Abraham. They're supposed to be looking forward to the fulfillment of what God has done for them, of this tremendous promise for them. And so that's what they're supposed to learn. That's what God is waiting for them to grow in. Just to remind you of the covenant promise, Genesis chapter 15. This is when Abraham takes a bunch of animals, cuts them in half, spreads them out, and then he stands there and guards them because the birds of prey kept trying to eat the birds, eat the uh, carcasses. And then uh, Genesis 15, chapter, or 15, verse 12 says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness came upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with a great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, and they will come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet completed. That's the promise that Joseph was hanging on. That was the promise that Israel was supposed to be looking forward to. That was the promise that they were supposed to be banking on. And so when they leave, that's where they left. As a matter of fact, another verse in chapter 12 talks about, uh, verse, uh, chapter, starting in verse 40, I'm sorry, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. Why does Moses even bother mentioning that? Because it was... Fulfillment of a promise. God said, you'll be there for 400 years. It's time to go. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. On that very day, the day that they came in, 430 years later, on that same day, they left. That's, that's how exact the promise was. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt, so that the same night is a night of watching 
kept to the Lord by all the peoples of Israel throughout the generations of watching. Who watched? The Lord watched them. He kept watch over them so that he could bring them out according to his covenant promise. And so they lead. Now he just tells them, all right, go out and wander in the desert for a while. I'll pick you up later. God himself leads. Listen to this. And they moved on from Sukkoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them, uh, to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of cloud to give them light that they might travel by day and night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Don't miss that first part. The Lord went before them in a pillar. Now, there's more theology to the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that we're going to develop this morning. We'll kind of follow it as it goes. But that's what that picture is supposed to be. It's supposed to represent that pillar of cloud. Okay, so it's a tornado. But it gets the idea across. It looked like it to me. It was pretty dramatic. So what's going on here? Well, first of all, we have no idea where Etham is. If you flip to the back of your Bible and it's got a map and it says, here's where Etham is, it doesn't, that's a guess. They don't know where it was. Um, the word itself means the edge. So the edge of the desert. So who knows where it was? But it, what's going on here is that God himself is leading them. He is going out before them. He's saying, follow me. He's not saying, go follow Moses. He's saying, follow me. So as Moses is leading, Moses is watching where that cloud went. He says, that's the way we're going to go. God himself is leading his people. Psalm 105.39 says, He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to light by night. They're equipped to move wherever God wants them to because the pillar of cloud will be with them during the day. And at night, it says the pillar of fire is to give them light so they can travel both day and night. We don't think about it because we got headlights, right? Go drive on the freeway with your headlights off or San Francisco Canyon Road. Um, it's terrifying. Not that I've done it. Um, but we have, we have light. We have street lights and all of that. Back then, at night, you just didn't travel because you couldn't see anything. There was a danger you could fall off a cliff. You could, you could stumble and trip in the middle of the night. God instead gives them a traveling street light, a pillar of fire, as he travels before them, and he, and he leads them on their way. And so just as God was with them in the Passover, do you remember that part? That was the most striking part for me anyway in the Passover is verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. God himself went into Egypt, stood in front of the Israelites' door when he saw the blood and said, no, you can't come in here. And the destroyer went around. And now that same God shows up in a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud and he stands in front of them now, and he says, now follow me. It's just a striking picture of this, this movement that God is leading his people from, or people through, uh, through the wilderness to his covenant promise. His pillar of cloud and pillar of fire won't disappear until they get to their covenant promise, the promised land. And it's God himself who's doing that. So this is what I mean by God leads us by faith and by promise. We have to believe. You have to believe. It's required. God doesn't override you and go, well, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it anyway. He says, follow me. Trust me. Believe me. Put your hope in my promises. He leads by faith and by promise. And then when he leads, it's personal. He's right there with us, walking with us. What we're going to see next week is he's going to move from in front of Israel to behind him in order to block Egypt. He cares. 
This is, this is the picture that Moses has painted for us before we get into the travel uh, section, before we start heading through the wilderness. Is he wants us to remember that this is God personally working with his people. That as they're traveling, it's not because the old joke, Mo Moses refused to ask for directions, right? You've heard that one? Guys don't ever ask for directions. Well, that's, that's kind of a passe joke now because we have Google Maps and so we don't need directions. But it used to be Moses wouldn't ask for directions and that's why they got lost in the wilderness. Um, that's not what's happening. Moses wasn't driving. Moses was sitting firmly in the passenger seat. God was driving. They wandered through the wilderness because God led them through the wilderness. And, and as we go through the wilderness narrative, we'll pick it up and we'll unpack it more. It was, it was faith building. It was, it was unbelief challenging. It was a number of things. But for us, do we have a pillar of fire that stands in front of us when we have to go someplace? Well, we don't have a physical one. Do we have a promise that we can hold on to? Do, do we have a call to believe that promise? Our covenant promises are better. If you're getting anything from Hebrews in Sunday school, please get Jesus is better. Better promises, better covenants, better leadership, better all of that. And so that's the hope that we're given. This is what we have to bolt into our mind now as we move into the transition uh, to the, the wilderness narrative. Is we're still in the section of, of um, Exodus about God delivers. He's still delivering. He's still leading. He's still taking us out. We haven't arrived yet. So just a reminder, my outline for Exodus is God delivers us, God rules us, and God with us. Um, God's with us now, but not as he's going to be in the, in the end of the book. Oh, I, I gave the end away. I'm sorry. Should have said spoiler alert before. So that's, that's this little transition. That's where he's leading us. It's a similar call, just like we saw with what our deliverance looked like in the nine plagues. It was similar. It was the same thing that we go through. It was the same deliverance that we have. The call to Israel now as they march out of Egypt is the same call we have. Will you put faith in God's covenant promises and will you follow where he leads? Let's pray. Lord, our, our, our leader is not Moses. Moses is a servant in the house. Our leader is Jesus, a son over the entire house. And so our covenant is a better covenant founded on better promises, not just to inherit a piece of real estate in the Middle East. With Abraham, we will inherit the entire world. And Lord, the, the, the payment for the covenant is better than the blood of goats and sheeps. The payment for the covenant is the blood of your eternally begotten son. It doesn't take care of one sin. It takes care of the sins of the world. It takes care of all of our sin. So we don't go back and offer over and over again a sacrifice. Our high priest went in and sat down. So Lord, as we begin our, our journey in the wilderness with Israel, Lord, I pray that you would remind us to trust you and to trust your promises, that it's not always straight to the promised land. But Lord, you walk with us. You're right there. And so, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to see and to follow where you're leading. And Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.